Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 120, Lewis Latimer, Master Inventor. Hi, I'm Nikki. And I'm Jake. This week, we're talking about Lewis Latimer, an African-American inventor and draftsman. Latimer's parents self-emancipated to give their children the opportunities afforded to those born into freedom. A Chelsea native, Latimer's career took him from the Navy to a patent law firm to the prestigious circle of Edison's pioneers. But before we talk about Latimer's extraordinary accomplishments, we want to introduce our Patreon campaign. We're proud that we've been able to bring you a show every week for almost two and a half years now, and we've only missed one week in that time. We hope you agree the podcast has gotten better over time as we learn to be better researchers, writers, and speakers. However, bringing you this show isn't without costs. We pay monthly for web hosting and security, the service that hosts our podcast feed, and some audio processing tools. You can help us break even by contributing as little as $2 per month. Just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or click on the support us link at hubhistory.com. And now it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is The Complete Writings of Phyllis Wheatley. Although the date and place of her birth are not documented, scholars believe that Phyllis Wheatley was born in 1753 in West Africa, most likely in present-day Gambia or Senegal. Wheatley was enslaved by a visiting trader who took her to Boston on July 11, 1761, on a ship called the Phyllis. On arrival, she was sold to wealthy Boston merchant and tailor John Wheatley, who bought the young girl as a servant for his wife Susanna. John and Susanna Wheatley named the young girl Phyllis after the ship that had brought her to America. She was given the last name of Wheatley, as was common custom if any surname was used for enslaved people. The Wheatley's 18-year-old daughter Mary first tutored Phyllis in reading and writing. Their son Nathaniel also helped her. John Wheatley was known as a progressive throughout New England. His family gave Phyllis an unprecedented education for an enslaved person and for a female of any race. By the age of 12, Phyllis was reading Greek and Latin classics and difficult passages from the Bible. At age 14, she wrote her first poem, to the University of Cambridge in New England. Recognizing her literary ability, the Wheatley family supported Phyllis's education and left the household labor to their other domestic slaves. The Wheatleys often showed off her abilities to friends and family. Strongly influenced by her studies of the works of Alexander Pope, John Milton, Homer, Horace, and Virgil, Phyllis Wheatley began to write poetry. Many colonists found it difficult to believe that an African slave was writing excellent poetry. Wheatley had to defend her authorship of her poetry in court in 1772. She was examined by a group of Boston luminaries, including John Hancock, Thomas Hutchinson, then the governor of Massachusetts, and his lieutenant governor, Andrew Oliver. They concluded that she had written the poems ascribed to her and signed an attestation, which was included in the preface of her book of collected works, Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral, published in London in 1773. Publishers in Boston had declined to publish it, but her work was of great interest in London. There, Selina, Countess of Huntingdon, and the Earl of Dartmouth acted as patrons to help Wheatley gain publication. 
Her poetry received comment in the London Magazine in 1773, which published as a specimen of her work her poem, Hymn to the Morning, and said, These poems display no astonishing works of genius, but when we consider them as the productions of a young, untutored African who wrote them after six months' careful study of the English language, we cannot but suppress our admiration for talents so vigorous and lively. Of the volume of complete writings, the Amazon description tells us, This volume collects both Wheatley's letters and her poetry, hymns, elegies, translations, philosophical poems, and tales, including a poignant plea to the Earl of Dartmouth urging freedom for America and comparing the country's condition to her own. With her contemplative elegies and her use of the poetic imagination to escape an unsatisfactory world, Wheatley anticipated the Romantic movement of the following century. The appendices to this edition include poems of Wheatley's contemporary African-American poets, Lucy Terry, Jupiter Harmon, and Francis Williams. We'll include a link in this week's show notes. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring History Camp Boston, coming up on Saturday, March 16th at Suffolk University Law School. History Camp is a unique, day-long event that opens up the idea of a history conference to everybody. You don't have to be a historian or a professor to attend. Anyone's welcome, and there are over 50 great short-form sessions by well-known historians to choose from, including plenty of people we've quoted from and even interviewed on the show. This year, topics will include Heroic Souls, Puritan Women as the First American Individuals, when America Despised the Irish, The 19th Century's Refugee Crisis, James and Dolly, Opposites Attract, The Untold Story of Massasoit and the Colonists, and The Not-So-Good Life of the Colonial Good Wife. History Camp has something for everyone, whether you're an academic, public historian, or just a nerd like us. Besides having a chance to learn new facets of history we've never heard before, it's also always a great opportunity to meet like-minded people. And we've made some lasting friendships in our five years at History Camp. If you attend, make sure to introduce yourself as a listener. We'll be the ones with the Hub History stickers on our name tags, and we always like to have a chance to meet listeners. We'll include a link to purchase History Camp tickets in this week's show notes. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Lewis Latimer was born in Chelsea on September 4th, 1848. But his family's story begins with his parents' flight from slavery. His father, George Latimer, was born in Norfolk, Virginia. George's father, Mitchell Latimer, was a white man, and his mother, Margaret Olmsted, was an enslaved woman belonging to his uncle, Edward Latimer. In the early part of his life, he was owned by a man named Edward Mallory, for whom he worked as a domestic servant until the age of 16. After that, his labor was hired out, and he primarily worked driving a dray and as a shopkeeper. On two separate occasions, he spent time in prison as a result of the debts of his master. He was eventually sold to James Gray, a shop owner whose store Latimer manned. Gray abused Latimer, and it is thought that this abuse precipitated Latimer's flight to Boston. On October 4, 1842, Latimer and his wife Rebecca, who was pregnant at the time, ran away. She was determined that their children would be born free. The pair hid beneath the deck of a northbound ship that took them to Baltimore. From there, they traveled to Philadelphia, with Rebecca posing as a servant to her lighter-skinned husband. 
From Pennsylvania, they made their way to Boston, arriving on either October 7th or 8th. James Gray offered a reward of $25 if Latimer was captured in Virginia and $50 plus expenses if he was captured outside of Virginia. On the day that George and Rebecca arrived in Boston, George was recognized by a former employee of James Gray who contacted him. On October 20th, Latimer was arrested. The initial charge was larceny, and Latimer was brought before Justice Joseph Story, who ordered that he be held. After Latimer's arrest, word spread through the Black community, and a group led by Henry G. Tracy attempted to rescue him, but they were unsuccessful. Latimer's lawyer, Samuel Edmund Sewell, then sought a writ of personal replevin from Massachusetts Chief Justice Lemuel Shaw, who was known to have strong anti-slavery views. Replevin is a legal remedy, which enables a person to recover personal property taken wrongfully or unlawfully, pending a final determination by a court of law, and to obtain compensation for resulting losses. Sewell argued that Latimer should have the right to have his identity determined by a jury. This attempt at freeing Latimer, however, also failed, as Shaw denied the writ. According to the abolitionist paper The Liberator, Shaw said that it was a federal matter, and the Constitution and the laws of Congress were to be obeyed, however disagreeable to our natural sympathies or views of duty. Latimer's arrest and the subsequent case brought about an immense public response in the state of Massachusetts. Latimer's counsel, Sewell, chaired a meeting at Faneuil Hall, where attendees not only vowed resistance to slave-catching, but also voted for disunion. Additional meetings were held throughout the state, called Latimer Meetings, which included both black and white abolitionists. A newspaper called the Latimer and North Star Journal was created by Henry Ingersoll Bowditch, William F. Channing, and Frederick Cabot, the men appointed to the newly formed Latimer Committee. With issues coming out every other day, the Latimer Journal reported that the social unrest related to Latimer's imprisonment was such that fire and bloodshed threatened in every direction. A major development that occurred as a result of Latimer's arrest was the Latimer Committee's creation of two separate petitions, the Great Massachusetts Petition and the Great Petition to Congress. The former requested a law banning the involvement of state officials or public property in the detention or arrest of suspected fugitives. The latter demanded that laws be passed severing any connection between Massachusetts and slavery. Latimer's freedom was purchased while these petition drives were still ongoing, but they had a considerable impact. The petition delivered to the State Assembly contained 64,526 signatures and weighed 150 pounds by the time it was delivered on February 17, 1843. This petition was a significant contribution to the passage of the 1843 Personal Liberty Act, dubbed the Latimer Law, which prevented Massachusetts officials from assisting in the detention of suspected fugitive slaves and banned the use of state facilities to detain such suspects. The petition to Congress, delivered to John Quincy Adams, was less successful, with no legislation resulting from it due to the complacency of his peers. Latimer's arrest spurred other action as well. It was the immediate impetus for the organization of the New England Freedom Association. In a Liberator article, the association described its purpose. The object of our association is to extend a helping hand to all who may bid adieu to whips and chains, and by the welcome light of the North Star, reach a haven where they can be protected from the grasp of the man-stealer. An article of the Constitution enjoins us to not pay one farthing to any slaveholder for the property they may claim in a human being. 
Our mission is to succor those who claim property in themselves and thereby acknowledge an independence of slavery. His arrest significantly increased collective action in the Black community of Massachusetts. One example of this is the fundraising efforts that helped raise the $400 that was eventually used to purchase Latimer. A November 21, 1843 article in the Boston Bee detailed Latimer's purchase and was reported in a subsequent pamphlet as follows. The early part of this week, two petitions were gotten up and signed by many abolitionists, requesting Sheriff Evelith to order Coolidge to discharge Latimer from the jail, and containing several threats to cause C's removal from office for his abuse of power. This alarmed Coolidge, and on Wednesday evening, he notified Gray that he could not act as his agent any longer, and frankly states his reasons, the prejudice these abolitionists were creating against him. Of this step, the latter party must have been aware, for on that evening, Sewell called at the jail and directed Latimer how to act, should Gray attempt to take him into his own custody, to scream and raise an outcry, and then the Negroes would rescue him. Fifteen or twenty Negroes, too, watched the jail through the night of Wednesday to prevent Gray from removing his property. On Thursday morning, the counsel for the Negroes in the riot cases of the municipal court obtained a writ of habeas corpus to have L. brought to the court as a witness for the defense. On that day, November 17th, an agreement was negotiated between a Negro and Coolidge for the purchase of the slave, and $800 was fixed as the price. This was refused by the Negro, who offered 650 for him, and upon Dr. Bowditch agreeing to pay that sum for George, Gray accepted it, and the parties were to meet at the jail office at 7 o'clock to adjust the business. The hour came and brought the parties, but Dr. Bowditch stated that he had seen an order of the sheriff directing Coolidge to discharge Latimer at 12 o'clock on Friday, and as Gray could not find a place strong enough to keep him from the Negroes till the day of the hearing— and as he would of necessity be rescued, he should not pay anything for him, and thus backed out of his contract, and boasted on that evening to a friend of ours that he had failed to fulfill his agreement. A Negro minister, however, offered Austin $400 for Latimer, which was accepted, and at 10 o'clock on Thursday evening, the money was paid, and the slave was made a free man. After his freedom was purchased, George Latimer remained involved in the abolitionist cause attending anti-slavery conventions and helping to gather signatures for the two petitions that were started while he was imprisoned. There's not a great deal of information available about Latimer's life as a free man. We do know that in 1851, he was involved in the rescue of an escaped enslaved man, Shadrach Minkins, as he was paid to keep Minkins' owner under surveillance. Latimer's primary occupation was as a paper hanger, and he worked in this capacity for 45 years in Lynn. The first of the Latimer's four children was born shortly after his freedom was purchased. The youngest, Louis, came along in 1848. Mass Moments provide some details of his childhood. Young Louis spent his early years in Chelsea and Boston, attending school and assisting in his father's barbershop and with paper-hanging jobs. All that changed when he was nine and, as he later wrote, his father went out of his life. In 1857, the U.S. Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision cast a threatening cloud over the family. Because George Latimer had no documents to prove that he had been freed, he was in danger of being returned to slavery. Fearing for his own and his family's safety, he disappeared, leaving his wife and children in desperate financial straits. 
Lewis's two brothers were sent to a state institution known as the Farm School, and his sister went to live with a friend. Lewis remained with his mother until she got a chance to go to sea as a stewardess. Then, he too was sent to the farm school. After a period of time there, he and a brother and another boy who, like themselves, pined for freedom, ran away. They managed the 84-mile trip to Boston in three days. Back in Boston, he worked as a domestic servant and in a law office. Lewis joined the Navy at age 15, lying about his age, on September 16, 1863, and served as a landsman on the USS Massasoit. After receiving an honorable discharge from the Navy on July 3, 1865, he gained employment as an office boy with a patent law firm, Crosby, Halstead, and Gould. A Smithsonian article by Louvenia George describes his experience at the firm. In 1868, he secured a job as an office boy in the Crosby and Gould Patent Law Firm, a company that specialized in helping inventors protect their patents. By closely observing draftsmen at work and reading books on the subject, Latimer taught himself mechanical drawing. He learned to skillfully use the vital tools of the trade, such as T-squares, triangles, compasses, and rulers, and mastered the art of drawing to scale. Since all of the drawings were done by hand and in ink, it was very important that a draftsman not make mistakes. Latimer's drawings in this medium are as beautiful as works of art. After several months of studying on his own, he requested and was given an opportunity by the firm to show what he could do. Upon discovering that Latimer was indeed a skilled draftsman, he was promoted from office boy, earning a salary of $3 per week, to draftsman at $20. In the period immediately following the Civil War, important scientific advances occurred in America. There was an explosion of inventions and new uses of technology and inventors were securing thousands of patents in growing industries. While working at the Boston firm, Latimer met Alexander Graham Bell, who hired him to draw the plans for a new invention, the telephone. Bell was in a race to have his invention patented before anyone else registered a similar device. By working with him late at night, Latimer was able to provide Bell with the blueprints and expertise in submitting applications that allowed him to file his telephone patent on February 14, 1876, just a few hours earlier than that of a rival inventor. They had won the race. In his 1911 logbook, written at times in the third person, Latimer recounted this time at Crosby and Gould. He believed then that whatever a man knew, he had put in a book. So when he saw the draftsman making drawings, he watched to find out what tools he used. Then he went to a second-hand bookstore and got a book on drawing, and soon had a set of drawing instruments. He then looked over the draftsman's shoulder to see how he used his instruments, and practiced with them at home until he felt thoroughly masterful of them. Then one day, he asked the draftsman to let him do some drawing for him. The man laughed at him, but finally consented to look at what he could do in another piece of paper. And to his surprise, found that Lewis was a real draftsman. So he let him do some of the work from time to time, and one day the boss saw him at work and was so pleased that he let him work every day, and gradually raised his wages so that from $3 when he went to work, he rose in 11 years to $20 a week. After turnover among the firm's partners, Latimer left Boston for Bridgeport, and then New York, and in 1879, at age 31, he took a position as a mechanical draftsman for Hiram Maxim inventor and founder of the U.S. Electric Lighting Company. 
In his writing, he recalled his first meeting with Maxim, who later went on to international fame for inventing the first fully automatic machine gun. In 1879, I was at work in a machine shop doing a short job of mechanical drawing, when a stranger came in and expressed himself as delighted to find a draftsman, as he had for weeks been looking for one to make some patent office drawings for him. This stranger proved to be Sir Hiram Maxim of gun fame, although he was up to that time plain Hiram Maxim. He was at this time the chief engineer and inventor of the U.S. Electric Lighting Company, and he engaged me there and then to become his draftsman and private secretary. Within a week from the time we first met, I was installed in Mr. Maxim's office, busily following my vocation of mechanical draftsman and acquainting myself with every branch of electric incandescent light construction and operation. In Blueprint for Change, The Life and Times of Louis H. Latimer, Bela Singer describes Latimer's work during this time. Several officers of the U.S. Electric Lighting Company encouraged the employees to suggest improvements, although Maxim was reportedly hostile to the notion. Latimer took the opportunity wholeheartedly. He learned every aspect of electric light design and manufacturing and gave full play to his creative talent. Of the numerous inventions Latimer made during his employment with U.S. Electric, three were patented. A new support for arc lights, an improvement to Maxim's method of manufacturing filaments for incandescent bulbs, and a new way to attach the carbonized filament to the platinum wires that brought electricity into the bulb from the base. In addition, Latimer's unpatented inventions improved designs for virtually all of the other equipment and steps involved in the lamp-making process. The oven that baked the filaments. The preparation of phosphoric anhydride a chemical used for drying the inert gas that filled the bulb and prolonged the filament life, glass-blowing equipment to produce bulbs, and a new socket and switch. When the company moved to Brooklyn in 1880, Latimer moved with it and continued to diversify his achievements. In addition to his desk work and shop work, he went out into the field, assisting in arc and incandescent installations of Maxim equipment in New York, Philadelphia, and Montreal. In his logbook, he later recalled, I had qualified myself to take charge of producing the carbons for the lamps when I was not drawing and worked through the day helping to make the lamps and at night installing them in stores and offices. Electrical measurements had not then been invented and all our work was done by guess. Office bell wire was the only kind on the market and our method of figuring was that it was a good guess that that size wire would carry a certain number of lamps without dangerous heating. A number of mysterious fires about this time were probably the fruit of our ignorance. The Equitable Building, Fish and Hatch, the Union Club, and a number of other places were supplied with lamps and the men to run them. These were strenuous times, and we made long hours each day. At the factory by seven in the morning, and after the day's work, somewhere running lamps until 12 o'clock or later at night. Latimer spent most of 1882 on assignment in London, advising the English on setting up a lamp factory. When he returned, he found that the U.S. Electric Light Company had undergone several changes, and there was no longer a place for him in the company. Louvenia George describes his next move. In 1884, he was invited to work for Maxim's arch-rival, Thomas Alva Edison, in New York. An expert electrical engineer, Latimer's work for Edison was critical for the following reasons. 
His thorough knowledge of electric lighting and power guided Edison through the process of filing patent forms properly at the U.S. Patent Office, protecting the company from infringements of his inventions. Latimer was also in charge of the company library, collecting information from around the world, translating data in French and German to protect the company from European challenges. He became Edison's patent investigator and an expert witness in cases against persons trying to benefit from Edison's inventions without legal permission. Edison encouraged Latimer to write the book Incandescent Electric Lighting, a practical description of the Edison system. Published in 1890, it was extremely popular as it explained how an incandescent lamp produces light in an easy-to-understand manner. On February 11, 1918, Latimer became one of the 28 charter members of the Edison Pioneers, the only African-American in this prestigious, highly selective group. However, Latimer was clear in his writings that at the Edison Company, his color began to be a drawback. He wrote, Every new workman who came into the office saw for the first time a colored man making drawings, and as often as they came to work in the office, they tried to pretend that he could not do their work. Latimer responded to the prejudice he faced throughout his career by committing to self-improvement, both professionally and personally. He became a man of culture, a musician, artist, playwright, and poet. He aimed to be the sort of accomplished man that whites could not easily dismiss. Singer writes of the significance of his selection to the Edison pioneers. At a time when engineers and technical men saw themselves as the rightful inheritors of political power in the United States, because of their ability to solve practical problems in a scientific way, it is noteworthy that Latimer, an African-American, was admitted to the initial group of pioneers. From Latimer's perspective, membership in the pioneers probably seemed consonant with his personal efforts to lead by example in constructing a social identity for African-Americans. Situations in which Latimer proved that a colored man was capable of highly technical work are a recurrent thread in Latimer's recollections. From Crosby and Gould in Boston, to Maxim in Bridgeport, to the English bosses, and Latimer's fellow employees in the Edison shops, supervisors as well as co-workers needed convincing. Latimer prevailed repeatedly, and the quality of his work and personality kept him employed through several corporate reorganizations. Later reminiscences by those who knew him professionally portray him as dignified, competent, and friendly. Surviving copies of warm correspondence with professional colleagues reinforce the image of a man moving easily within predominantly European-American professional circles. When the professional sphere began to fade into the social, Latimer maintained the place he had earned, while never losing touch with his roots. Latimer spent the remainder of his career working for a patent consultant firm until 1922 and volunteering at the Henry Street Settlement House teaching English to immigrants. With his eyesight already failing, his general health declined after the death of his beloved wife, Mary Wilson Latimer, in 1924. As a celebration of his 77th birthday, Latimer's two daughters had a book of his poems published in 1925, which offers us an entirely different lens of Latimer after a lifetime of technical writings. He died in 1928 at the age of 80. It feels fitting to conclude with his poem, Friends. Friend of my childhood, of life's early days, when together we wandered through bright sunny ways, each true to the other till full manhood came, and found the old friendship as ever the same. Came summer and winter, years waxed and waned, 
Youth it had left us, but friendship remained. And now, as with white locks, I bend o'er life's page. The friend of my childhood is the friend of my age. To learn more about Lewis Latimer, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 120. We'll have links to the pamphlet we cited that detailed George Latimer's legal battle and a Rutgers profile of the case with two autobiographical sketches. We'll link to all of the articles we cited, including Blueprint for Change, The Life and Times of Lewis H. Latimer, from the Edison Archives at Rutgers University. We'll also include some of his mechanical drawings. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and the complete writings of Phyllis Wheatley, this week's Boston Book Club pick. Before we go, we have listener feedback to share this week. Michelle listened to episode 117 about early abolitionist David Walker and tweeted, Such a good episode. I learned about David Walker and Maria Stewart not long ago from a Museum of African American History lecture. More people should know about these brave freedom fighters. Someone who goes by the Stentorian Historian on Twitter also reached out to say, That moment when you realize you're horrifically behind on listening to a favorite podcast. I'm around episode 50 of Hub History out of 117. Normally, I use podcasts as background noise, but it's so interesting that I have to actively pay attention. Credit where it's due. Jake and Nikki do great work. Another listener named Jim recently caught up on our 19th episode from back in March of 2017, which was called A Tale of Two Hermits. One of our hermits was James Gately, the hermit of Hyde Park, who lived in a forest and made his living by selling taxidermied wildlife. Jim thought the story sounded familiar and emailed us to say, Regarding one of your podcasts, Hermit, I asked for and got a reply about examples of James Gately taxidermy work that was displayed in the Hyde Park branch of the BPL. He then forwarded an email from one of the Hyde Park librarians. We do have an owl display that hung for many years in the children's room in a large wooden case with a glass front. This display was on top of a bookcase when the Menino Wing opened, but we moved it for safety's sake into Weld Hall. It's no longer on display until we can find a safe way to secure it to a wall or a piece of furniture. While it's not on display right now, it's exciting to learn that this little piece of local history still survives. Thanks for tipping us off, Jim. New listener David started off with episode 59 about the Motherbrook, America's first industrial canal. I listened to your podcast about Motherbrook and was very impressed. I was astounded at how much material you cover in one episode all the research you must have done, and the production quality. Music and photos and everything. Wow. This podcast effort must take incredible amounts of time if it's representative of all your episodes. David, thanks for the kind words. You're right, we do put a lot of work into each episode. A show that's an hour long when you listen to it probably represents two hours of recording and another three hours of editing. On top of that is the time we spend on researching and writing a 10-20 to page script. We invest the time because we love bringing you a good show, but there are monetary costs also. If you enjoy what we do, please consider supporting our Patreon campaign. For as little as $2 a month, you can help us offset the cost of web hosting and security, the service that hosts our podcast feed, and audio processing tools we pay for monthly. Just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or click on the support us link at hubhistory.com and help us break even. We enjoy getting listener feedback whether you loved the episode or just liked it a lot. We're happy to hear your episode suggestions, factual corrections, 
and alternate sources that we may have missed. If you want to leave us some feedback on this show or any other, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We also have a voicemail line at 617-383-9255, where you can call and leave a voicemail. We'd love to get some audio feedback that we can share in a future episode. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. It's the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk about Boston's reaction to the film Birth of a Nation.